And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. This episode is going to probably be one of our crazier ones. Uh, We're looking at a particular time in our Adventist history that kind of defies uh, explanation up until this point. I mean, we've definitely had some characters. There's been a lot of people with, you know, quirky personalities. But the story today is going to be about a young lady, uh, a a possible successor to Ellen White, um, a lady named Margaret Rowan. And the story, uh, it starts out, you know, fairly, fairly normal, uh, at least for the time frame, and then just suddenly goes off the rails by the end of it. So uh, we're going to be looking today at not only her story, but also the story of the people who followed her, who believed that she was a prophet, given special visions and messages from God, and kind of just following the story of of a, a somewhat aberrant movement that kind of sprang off of the the stories of our other pioneers and and created its own kind of tidal wave of stuff and we've had a couple of cool things uh, kind of resurface lately over the last few years um, some of the research that uh, Michael has done on the encyclopedia article from Margaret Rowan is accessible online but we've also just come across a really cool collection of personal letters and memos and even some recordings of visions uh, from Margaret Rowan by her followers and a family that was super close to her so we're going to be looking at some of that stuff today. Michael, could you tell us and start us off a little bit about who we're looking at and uh, where she kind of all started with this? This has got to be one of the most bizarre, uh, crazy stories in our Adventist past that I can think of. And there's certainly been quite a number of people who have claimed to have the prophetic gift in addition to Ellen White. But by far, this is the most intriguing and disturbing of all the claimants to the gift of prophecy. Uh, And the story really begins right after the death of Ellen White, where you have a young lady who is a recent convert, grew up in a Methodist home, and she is gathered around in a group of women in a prayer band when she is taken off in vision. And uh, as part of that, she begins to see uh, that the church needs to be reformed. She sees herself as a reformer, very much in the line of Ellen White, again, who had only recently passed away uh, the year before. So hardly is Ellen White's body cold in the ground. (laughs) Then there's somebody claiming to be her prophetic successor. And this sets off, uh, touches off a wave of a whole series of events that will go on for the next 10, 15 years uh, that eventually leads to this whole whodunit thing that you talked about with an attempted murder, and in fact, the person ultimately uh, tragically dies. So, um, and I first became interested in it because uh, about 20, 25 years ago, uh, a good friend of mine, Stan Hickerson, uh, the late Stan Hickerson, who was uh, just an indefatigable uh, Adventist historical researcher and had been a pastor in California, and he had known some people that had been connected to the Rowanites. So, all the way into the 60s and 70s, there was still a small group, a remnant of people uh, that he had bumped into that were still 
believing that Margaret Rowan was God's true prophetic messenger. So who was this person that all the way back uh, claimed to have visions and touched off a movement that would be the namesake, her namesake, uh, known as the Rowanites? Tell us a little bit about what she was like before she felt the call. She was somebody that was really influenced by the Azusa Street Revival. That's the birthplace of Pentecostalism. You know, we've kind of talked about this a little bit. There's really not any direct connection with uh, the between Margaret Rowan and the Azusa Street directly, but it seems very circumstantial. Obviously, that's happening in Los Angeles. She is converted and living in Los Angeles. She'd actually grown up on the East Coast uh, in Pennsylvania and Delaware, but um, uh, early on in her life, um, as a, as she had gotten married and, and she and her husband had moved out to the West Coast to California, kind of seek a better life, new opportunities. And um, so she's gathered as an early convert of Adventism, and she is really focused on what she called the special anointing of the Holy Spirit, this this call for the Holy Spirit to uh, be cast upon them. And, and, and it was in one of those prayer groups that there was a lady who, uh, soon after her conversion, she actually dies, but before she does, she is sort of uh, communicates to Margaret Rowan this special conviction that that she had been called to carry on the work of the Spirit. And so there's a sort of sense of calling. Here's this older woman who, um, I, not quite Pentecostal is the right term, but very focused on, on being Spirit-led and is saying, hey, you've been chosen as sort of a special mouthpiece to, to be called by God. And it's in that context that later in one of these later prayer groups, these women's groups focused on the calling of the Holy Spirit, that that she has this vision and she is convinced that God has indeed anointed her as God's prophetic messenger for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, she begins to share her views. And her first vision is published in a pamphlet called A Stirring Message for This Time. And if you read it, it's quite intriguing because it talks about the fall of Lucifer, talks about the seven last plagues, it talks about heaven, the second coming of Christ. And in that sense, it's actually very, very uh, similar to Ellen White's vision where she talks about the second coming. She talks about walking with Jesus through heaven, these kinds of things. But there are some noticeable differences where she's much more focused on numerology. She's much more focused on um, where God's people are, that they end up uh, going through a whole series of different um different events. They go, you see the angels, the evil angels thrown out of heaven. Um, and so again, a lot of similarities, but not, uh, <coughs> excuse me, not enough differences, <coughs> excuse me, not enough differences that people don't really see a contrast. They see more of a continuity and she begins to attract a following uh, where some people begin to see uh, hey, well, if she had this vision, boy, it's awfully similar to what we remember reading in the book Early Writings um, about Ellen White's first vision. So, um, again, a few a few very minor differences, but but again, a lot of continuity. Okay, so what I what I'm seeing on this thing kind of seems to be somebody who's intentionally stepping into not even just like you know the the, the mantle of, of prophetic um, 
uh, authority, but somebody who's even taking on the verbiage and and the uh, the emphases, if nothing mm-hmm. else, and some what Ellen Wright kind of wrote about. Um, she's she's really taking on that voice uh, that seems to have an yeah. intentionality behind it. Yeah, and and by the way, one of the things that's intriguing about Margaret Rowan is there's a number of people who witnessed that vision and subsequent visions who are testifying about supernatural phenomena, seeing her uh, looking up into heaven with her eyes gazing upward, uh, what appears to be that she's not breathing in any way that, that people can tell and that her body is supernaturally rigid. And, and it's that appeal to the supernatural that really gets the attention of a lot of people saying, hey, uh, maybe God has indeed appointed a prophetic successor. And it's the trauma of losing a living prophet that is hard to appreciate now more than a century later, um, having had that prophetic voice throughout the early beginnings of Adventism, it kind of does make sense that, well, if we've had a prophet so far, it's not far-fetched to think that maybe in the wake of the death of Ellen White, that God would in fact send another prophet. So, um, and, and I think this is one of the important things to remember is that Adventists don't believe in Ellen White because of the supernatural phenomena. Although we've appealed to that, it certainly gets our attention. Uh, and, and so similarly, you know, we kind of set ourselves up in a way by focusing so much on the supernatural phenomena that when people start seeing these kinds of things, they're like, oh my goodness, this must be a prophetic messenger and I need to pay attention. And uh, we like to hear people with a reform message saying, you know, the church is kind of getting liberal. It's getting moving in the direction of apostasy. We need to become more conservative and go back to traditional values. A lot of what Margaret Rowan was espousing in these, and especially at the very beginning, is to pay attention to keep the Sabbath more strictly, to follow health and dress reform more carefully. These are things that sound really, really good. And for a lot of, especially conservative Adventists, um, they saw that and said, hey, um, that's exactly what the church needs. It's what I think the church needs. And here we have a prophet that's that's warning us and, and kind of telling us off. It's almost as if we feel the urge or need to be told off a little bit. <laughs> so there's, there's it's been, kind of become a mouthpiece for what mm-hmm. she feels like was wrong with the church. Yeah, really it does. Yeah. Nice. I've got, a, I've got an interesting... Um, this partial piece of an article here that was written up, and I want to say it's around 1918. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually is describing the infilling uh, of the Holy Spirit in this wow. particular document, which yeah. is kind of an interesting one. She said, um, as she was uh, looking at the whole thing, she said, the time has come for all the gifts to be manifested among the remnant people. Yeah. All of heaven is even more anxious uh, than God and themselves. The... The idea that she comes up with here that was kind of cool was that there's nobody out there who should be criticizing the spiritual gifts. She says, many are hindered from receiving the power of the Holy Ghost by their dread and fear of appearing peculiar to others. This thought must be banished from the mind. God will never permit his spirit-filled people at any time or in any place to appear fanatical. Mm. And, and I mean, that kind of speaks out to me because what she's appealing to is there is the continuation of spiritual gifts, but also that the fact that anybody else shows them should never 
uh, make us question or doubt. They will not be fanatical. They will not be considered crazy. Um, it's an interesting almost self-promotion there. But she's appealing to at least our theology of spiritual gifts versus, you know, the, the continuation of Ellen White specifically per se. Yeah. And, and you know, someday I, I want to write a book, Greg, on all the would-be people that have claimed to have the prophetic gift. I think there's that easily 50, 60 individuals. And so I want to cherry pick the dozen or so. And I think Margaret Rowan would have to go first. Um, but because of our openness to the canon of scripture, that there's some fluid fluidity there that, that yes, scripture is the Holy Bible, but, but that doesn't forbid the possibility of other prophetic messengers and prophetic voices. Um, but but really, the, the, that's kind of opened the floodgates. And so, uh, but at the same time, um, I, don't, I don't see for Margaret Rowan where she's kind of warning, how do you discern between the true and the false? It's kind of like, well, you need to listen and pay attention to me because there is this prophetic gift, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she's kind of already got things set up in place. Uh, yeah. She's moving forward with this. She starts a periodical, the Reform Advocate and Prayer Band Appeal. Um, and by the around... way, I think you found the first copies I've ever seen of that. So I'm, uh, well, I'm really stoked about this. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're, they're copies of, you know, I've got a couple of different uh, Xeroxes here, this thing. But the one I've got is probably one of the later versions of it. Um, she starts this movement, you know, yeah. by, by pushing things forward. She's got some Adventist pastors along um, a guy named uh, Blunt and Richardson, mm-hmm. uh, Province, and some other guys. What what starts happening that that starts gaining some traction? I'd say among clergy, but also wider um, people. Do you think? Yeah, great, great question. Because you know what's really happening is that she's having these visions, starting to circulate them. People are hearing them. There are several Adventist ministers that begin to actually throw the weight of their uh, throw their support uh, behind Margaret Rowan. So that starts to help her get some more serious traction. And uh, there is a young physician, Dr. Bert Fulmer, and his wife, uh, and the two of them become, uh, they basically throw their whole life savings into the movement uh, and, and to try. And, and one thing that's kind of curious uh that I discovered in writing the recent encyclopedia article that for the Adventist encyclopedia, uh, I was looking at census records is that they were so into the whole Margaret Rowan and this Rowanite movement that they're actually living next to each other. Now, it's not clear to me if, if the Fulmers moved in next to Margaret Rowan or Margaret uh, Rowan moved in to live next to them, but there was some kind of house it was split in half because the address, and so we know from census records that um, for the next decade or so that they were literally living uh, adjacent to each other. So that kind of became the headquarters, the compound, um, if you would, for the Rowanites. And once Dr. Fulmer <coughs> gets behind the movement, he becomes the editor of the paper for quite a few years. Um, he becomes sort of like the Joshua Himes was to William Miller, you know, this publicist that is going way beyond to try to let people know about Margaret Rowan. So Fulmer gets involved, and that's where some of these papers came from. Um, I think the family of Fulmer uh, passed some of this stuff down that I picked up. He starts getting involved by, you know, 1918, 1919. Uh, It seems like some people start really getting 
getting behind her and some of the stuff. Um, one of the one of the the handwritten um, letters that I find out here is she started to push a real sense of diet. Um, in this particular one, she says the time has come when I would have have my people. Uh, refuse all food having anything to do with the animal. I would have no foods heated with oil. No baking powder should be used in anything that goes into the human stomach. And then in just a little while, my people will be ready to go to the mountain and hear the voice from the third heaven announcing the day and the hour of the coming of the Savior. That's so cool, Greg. I, I mean, I, I've kind of wondered. I knew she was into health reform, but these new documents really shed some uh, and elucidate much more clearly you know, part of this reform message that she had. Yeah. By 1918, she's already pushing the idea that if we get rid of all flesh food, then we will be ready to ascend and hear the second coming announcement. Um, that's a wow. That's a strong appeal, you know? Like, that's, yeah. we've been waiting for that for a long time. Now if I just give up oil and baking powder, then I can, I can know when it's all coming down. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, as Margaret Rowan kept making increasingly greater claims... One of the things that I think is really interesting that people need to know is how did the church, how did church leadership respond to Margaret Rowan's claims, right? Mm. So they do, you know, they did what, what any good Adventist church administrator would do, and that is to establish a committee. <laughs> <laughs> In the middle of World so, War I on, on top of it, though. <laughs> right, right. So that for the next couple of years... This committee meets. In fact, representatives of the committee actually go and visit with Margaret Rowan in her home. They listen to her. They read uh, her tracts. They read the content of her visions. And for the first, like, basically, like, two, two and a half years, the the jury's kind of out. They're like, well, we're really not sure. We're not willing to endorse her. Uh, we see a couple question marks we have. Um, and, uh, but, but... You know, neither are they willing to denounce her. But as time goes on, especially right after World War One into 1919, those claims become increasingly dramatic. And as they do so, that's where the bizarre part of the story really comes. So once we don't accept her is when she starts to get real negative is what I'm hearing. That's exactly it, Greg. As we start to see that... Um, for example, uh, in 1919, she actually kind of concocts this whole scheme that there is a letter. If only people would look in the files of the Ellen G. White estate up at Elmshaven in Northern California, where they were located at that time, if they look carefully, that they would find a letter written by Ellen White. Check this out. Written by Ellen White, endorsing her as her prophetic successor. And so, sure enough, uh, W.C. White, who's, you know, Ellen White's son and lives there, she or he um, actually starts looking through the files and finds a letter dated August 10, 1911. And you can easily go online, go to the White Estate, to the Digital Resource Center. You can actually see a copy, a digitized version of that letter. And uh, if you look at it, you can see that it's an obvious forgery. Not only is the signature really a bad forgery, but it's the wrong kind of paper. <laughs> it's dated, you know, on a date when Ellen White was actually not around there. It's dated St. Helena when all of Ellen White's letters in her last years of her life are dated Elmshaven. I mean, there's a list of about 30 to 40 different, you know, reasons why it's, you know, the, the whole punches are in the wrong spot on the on the side instead of on the top. So they, they just really, they really botched it, Greg. 
Um, and I, I think W.C. White, he could, you know, they obviously knew it was a forgery, but the question still was, how did that letter get there? Yeah, yeah. It, it's clearly somebody who's working on the inside, I'd say in this case, um, whether or not that's a another uh, <clears throat> church member. What who, What is Dr. Fulmer doing in the midst of this? Obviously, this is a big step in the claim. Um, what is yeah. Fulmer saying about this one? Well, and this is part of the rest of the story that, of the whodunit that I kind of was intrigued by because back in the late 90s, when I started investigating this for the first time and got acquainted with Stan Hickerson, I got in touch with Bert Fulmer's daughter who was still alive and uh, corresponded with her a little bit and, and got some documents from at least one side of the family. Um, I'm sure there's still more documents out there, like you found this treasure trove, and I'm sure uh, someone else is going to come along and find uh, a lot more. But uh, <clears throat> according, according to her, what was happening was basically uh, Bert Fulmer had been put up to it by Margaret Rowan that she had been told she was Ellen White's prophetic successor. And so in kind of this disbelief, she was told to go to the White estate and look in the files, and she found this letter, had taken it, and now here was this letter, then uh, it needed to be returned. So she talked Dr. Fulmer into believing that she had innocently kind of taken this in disbelief of her prophetic calling, and now it was up to him to get it back there safely into the vault. And what's really cool is about uh, two years ago uh, at the General Conference Archives, before COVID hit and everything, you could still go to the GC Archives and do research. I found a handwritten copy of his own account of this taking place, of how he felt he had later been duped. And so he told the whole story from his side and basically manipulated. <clears throat> well, that's, that's what he did. He and his wife went up to Northern California uh, we're on a tour. Arthur White, the young, young, uh, you know, I think he couldn't have been more than, you know, his late teens at the time, is giving a tour to these people of the vault, which was a common thing to do. And the electricity went out. Well, he didn't know that it was a setup and that they had cut the electricity. And uh, so there is um, uh, uh, Bert Fulmer in the actual vault. And puts the letter into one of the letter files there. Um, and supposedly the light, that's where the light, there was a small window shining in, was shining in on the, the letter files right around that spot. So it made it easy to just kind of shove it in there. And uh, so he confessed later on to having been the person to actually break into the White Estate Vault and to uh, put that forged letter uh, in that collection, causing great consternation. And according to lore of, you know, White Estate stories that I heard uh, when I was a young intern at the White Estate back in the 90s, that Arthur White always felt really bad that he'd left this person in the vault, and that had to have been when the letter was planted, and he had gone to go get a lantern and came back. And so just a few moments of not being careful and so in many years later, the vault at the White Estate, the vault door had to be replaced. And the story was told that Arthur White literally slept in the door of the vault on a cot to make sure to ensure the integrity that nobody would get into the vault of the White Estate and plant some kind of letter there. And so that had to have been a very traumatic event for, for the young, young Arthur White 
and I think that also contributed to his kind of philosophy that he had to protect his grandmother's writings in the white estate and protect them from people like the Margaret Rowans of the world, the would-be, um, these these bizarre claimants to the prophetic gift. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a human interest angle to the whole story. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. <clears throat> and that kind of jives with what I, I was there about two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And they were doing a whole renovation of the vault at the time. And I remember everything was out and off-site somewhere. And they were installing a bunch of new stuff and security systems. Like, that that fits with the the, the ethos that seemed to be going around there, that you can't be too careful, uh, if, if anything, when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think that's changed. <laughs> <laughs> so so we've got Fulmer here. They, they tried to plant this letter. It comes out. Um, ultimately... Fulmer seems to become a little disenchanted with the whole thing and yeah. stops stops believing in Margaret's visions, her ideas. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of, of, of opposition starting to come in from the yeah. uh, the church yeah. administration. What what is Margaret uh, doing here as as we move forward into the mid 20s? Yeah, well there's there's two intermediary steps before we get to what kind of happens at the end and the first is is that Margaret Rowan predicts the close of probation on February 6, 1924, and that Jesus would come exactly one year later on February 6, 1925. So if you can just imagine this, major newspapers from the LA Times to the New York Times <clears throat> across the country are carrying headlines along the lines of Adventist prophetess predicts end of the world. So this is quite scandalous for Adventists. Probably the closest thing in recent memory that I can think in my lifetime is sort of the whole Branch Davidian uh, uh, fiasco in 1993 <clears throat> when you had uh, Victor Hutaf and, and the ATF that stormed the compound in Waco, Texas. Um, that was on national news. Adventists were distancing themselves. He's not Adventist, even though he had formerly been an Adventist. Mm-hmm. So this all this drama and, and hype, right? <clears throat> that probably is the closest thing to something like what happened in 1924 or 1925 um, as as people, as Adventist church leaders are trying to distance themselves. We don't go into time setting. It's just not what we do as Adventists. We stopped that after 1844. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so that takes place. Of course, Christ doesn't come. And uh, <clears throat> her own mother, Matilda, has to uh, publicly denounce her daughter's teachings about the date for the eschaton. So you see that there's some strain, family strain that's happening. And it's also in the midst of that. (coughs) I'm sorry, Greg. (laughs) It's right in the midst of that, that um, she begins to have these incredible claims of parentage. Uh, that there is this couple that she had been left as an orphan, um, that but her original biological parents uh, were were this couple, and um, and 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 they were quite wealthy and without an heir, and so she began to claim that that this couple had started giving her all of this money, and people began to notice that she started driving a fancy car and fancy clothes, and a lot of different things like that. Um, and, and that's kind of what sets the stage for Dr. Fulmer, who, again, believed her to be a true prophet, had basically given her their life savings, had loaned, the, loaned her personal money when she needed it. All of this 
Um, and, and so this is her justification for this. Oh, well, I inher inherited this money. I've been given this money by my true biological parents. And Dr. Fulmer and his wife, Jessie, actually begin to investigate the books, looking at her organization and discover that lo and behold, she had been just, you know, uh, swindling, had been stealing from her own organization to live this lavish lifestyle. And it's at that point where the Fulmers become disenchanted and realize that she's a fraud, she's an imposter, um, she's not really a true prophet. And uh, that's really what sets the stage for the kind of final and most bizarre episode of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and I can, I can see things starting to crumble. Um, even by 1922, she's got a pretty cool uh, document here coming from Hollywood, California. She mm -hmm. says the leaders of the great denomination are doing what they feel will be their last and greatest stroke to crush out the reform movement. Um, the forced revival will not bring about what they expect it to do. Uh, they, she keeps kind of going on here that the end is nigh. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense of impending um, collapse, but a revival among them. She says, we have been called forever to stir the world uh, to, and to stir the denomination. And, 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 yeah. and it's an interesting... An interesting change, at least in tone, but also in desperation, it almost sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, Dr. Fulmer begins to actually sue Margaret Rowan in 1926 for money that he had loaned her. He wants to get whatever he can back. And I uh, see this is sort of this giant scam, Ponzi scheme, if you would. Uh, and in the midst of that, uh, Margaret Rowan realizes she needs to take out Dr. Fulmer, her up until then loyal uh, devoted follower. And back then, physicians made house calls. So they got a distress call about an automobile camp, sort of a, a, like an a inexpensive motel where Dr. Fulmer was lured to come to treat a patient in the middle of the night. And in the midst, uh, as he opened the room, uh, he gets hit over the head by um, some, uh, some boards. Uh, there's a struggle People that were nearby called the police. They heard a lot of noise, a commotion. And by the time the police show up, they find Margaret Rowan and two of her loyal uh, other devotees, Mary Wade and uh, Dr. Balzer, who are dragging Dr. Fulmer's body in a burlap bag, and they're carrying shovels across the parking lot. And so right away, the police start chasing them. Uh, Wade and Balzer are apprehended almost uh, right immediately. But Rowan goes into hiding. They're not able to actually catch catch her. Amazingly enough, Dr. Fulmer uh, didn't actually die. Um, he managed to survive. And that sets off a whole week-long manhunt. This is one of the new discoveries thanks to the digitization of prison records and police records in the state of California is we now have um, the official police report for each of them as they eventually are arrested. They eventually find Margaret Rowan. They think, according to the police report, they think she's trying to commit suicide. She's actually down by the ocean, uh, <laughs> and and she's going into the water, and they go into the water after her. So uh, and she comes up with this elaborate story trying to explain what she's doing, which raises some questions about mental stability through this whole thing. What exactly is going on here? Uh, well, they arrest her, and we have the prison mugshots, uh, the booking photos for all three of them. 
uh, that you can you can find. Just go to the California State Records uh, prison records and uh, search for Margaret Owen's name. So that's one of the cool things that's out there. That uh, and of course, all three of them end up doing time uh, in San Quentin uh, prison. Uh, we know that Margaret Rowan was incarcerated from 1927 to 1929, and then she is let loose on bail. Um, <clears throat> now, tragically, Dr. Fulmer, he survives, but the family, the descendants, at least the daughter that I knew and corresponded with, believed that he had been poisoned and he died later. Uh, she believed, at least, uh, that from some kind of poison that had been injected into him. So... Um, eventually when he does die, there's additional trumped up charges. It's no longer attempted murder. It's actual murder charges. But by then, uh, Margaret Rowan is long gone and, um, she's basically never heard from again. So there's all this mystique, this mystery, what happened to Margaret Rowan. There's reports that she kind of started life over in Florida. That's, that's what was going on from some of the descendants of the Rowanites that she was kind of in hiding Although more recently, thanks to, again, digital research, we've been able to pinpoint that she did, at least before she died, uh, move back to California where she passed away in Alhambra um, at the age of 67 in 1939. So that's taken quite a bit of, uh, just what I shared with you in that last minute has taken hours and hours and hours of research (laughs) trying to comb through uh, lots and lots of historical documents. But that's the fun of doing historical research is we're still finding new things all the time. And thanks to digitization, uh, family records, census records, all kinds of stuff, new stuff that your church members uh, have shared with you um, from different parts of the family and different people that were loyal, we, we begin to get a little bit more of a mosaic, a more complete picture of the uh, incredible flimflams, to borrow the phrase from good old Roger Kuhn in the 1980s. That's how he called this thing. The incredible flimflams of Margaret Rowan. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great. That's a great one. We should just call that. That should be the episode title: "The Flimflams of Margaret Rowan." Right. So, so if we had a takeaway from this one, what would you say our takeaway from some some random little story like this in Adventism would be? Well, you know, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And as Adventists, sometimes we want to believe things so badly, a reform message, to become stricter Adventists, these kinds of things, almost as an innate sense that, you know, Adventism is losing its its faithfulness or whatever. And so people believe what they want to believe sometimes and, and want to believe it so badly they're actually willing to buy into uh, this elaborate conspiracy, this elaborate concocted mess that eventually becomes expunged for for what it is. And and I think for me, um, how do we know that a, a prophet is truly from God? There are tests of a prophet, right? So and and those tests aren't just. Um, in fact, I don't even appeal at all to the supernatural tests uh, because supernatural things can be uh, imitated and faked. I mean, look at at Moses and Aaron and then the Egyptian priests who perform the same kinds of miracles, right? So the devil is powerful. The devil can do, uh, can be an imposter and, 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 and showcase supernatural phenomena. That's not why we believe in the gift of prophecy. And that's certainly why we don't believe in Ellen White. So, uh, but uh, there are a number of different gifts uh, or biblical tests of a true prophet. And one of them is from Matthew 7, um, 10 and 11, where it talks about, by your fruits, you shall know them. We call that the orchard test. 
And, and so one of the, the truest ways that we can know a prophet is a true prophet, and by the way, it's not saying that they're infallible, won't ever make mistakes, but, but you see a general pattern or a course or a, direct, a trajectory of their life that is authentic. They're living a, a genuine, authentic Christian life, growing closer to Jesus. And over time, you should see a development in that spiritual growth and that, that pointing to Jesus. And, and if they're not a true prophet, over time, it's going to start to unravel. You're going to see all kinds of, of craziness take place. And that's really what we see happening is a, a credible contrast um, over uh, this gift, what I call the orchard test. You know, by your fruits, you shall know them. And uh, we see such an incredible contrast between Ellen White and Margaret Rowan. And for me, that's my personal takeaway that I find um, most illuminating. How about you, Greg? Uh, you know, I, I hear you. Um, there's a couple of different things that kind of stand out to me. One, uh, the fact that we have to give some people time to develop those fruits to know whether or not. That, that's a little scary, but it also means that we need to not be um, too dismissive. So I think that's a bit of a takeaway for myself. The Adventism might perhaps err on the other end of things and be too dismissive of everybody. Um, but yeah. at the same time, keep your eyes wide open, right? I mean, nobody wants to end up in a burlap bag you know, literally or uh, symbolically, uh, I I think for me personally too, the story of of um, of how Margaret's views became popularized is is a warning tale in one way. Um, there's a yeah. lot of stuff out there. I mean, they had magazines, they had pamphlets, they had you know basic stuff. The amount of ways that we can dupe each other with information today is even bigger. Um, mm. I, I kind of think of Margaret Rowan in the realm of fake news or any of this other stuff out there. There's a lot of ways that we can we can miss the mark and and not necessarily understand what we're seeing. I think that the spirit of a Margaret Rowan is still active and is still open to to, yeah, to messing sure. people up in today's church. I I have mm-hmm. a lot of people showing up to my churches with DVDs and magazines in hand saying, here's our next great mission. Here's the truest reform. Some of that, I think, comes from a true place, and others of it, it, it comes from a almost a place of, uh, of, of desperation. We want mm. our beliefs to be valid. We want them to be verified. And we still want Jesus to come back. Uh, so I, I feel like if we're looking at motivations for this kind of stuff, there's a sense of we need we need to keep excited about Jesus coming back. And some of these things seem to fuel and to keep people going with that. So maybe that's part of the appeal, uh, at least from the Adventist side. But we have to, as as anything, we have to be careful about what we look at and give it the time to show itself. So I think that's some of my takeaways here. I think that puts a wrap for uh, this episode. And if you happen to know of some more Margaret Rowan materials, I, I really hope that one of these days, Greg, <clears throat> this is one of those topics I hope someone's going to write a doctoral dissertation. I know there's more material out there. And if you happen to have some Margaret Rowan stuff or uh, copies of the old Reform Advocate, uh, reach out to Greg or myself. We would love to hear what, because uh, we know there's more stuff out there. We'd love to have it. Thanks a lot, folks. Keep looking, keep thinking, and keep listening. Thanks a lot. And Jesus himself said, that he did not come to do away with the law. He will not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it.
The Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Adventist History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Adventist History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast. Enjoy the show.